0: Stay tuned for Corporations and Democracy.
1: First you told us only, through you could we know God. And if we dared to question, he wouldn't spare the rod. For you, we worked the soil. For you, we dug the moors. For you, we shed our blood and fought so many pointless wars. now you're trying to tell us... There's nothing we can do, you see The world around us belongs fairly to the few But about six billion people no doubt will agree This world is our home, not your property It's the commons, our right of birth And you who would enclose the land all around the earth Our future is your downfall when we cut this ball and chain You who would sacrifice the public good For your private gain, With our sweat we built the railroads Built cities on these shores But because you own the money You see that it's all yours We laid the phone lines and the pipelines And then right before our eyes You see these things are taxes paid for You now will privatize Privatize the hospitals Privatize the schools Privatize the prisons For all those who break your rules And preparing for the day When all the wells run dry, you say you own the very rain that falls down from the sky. But it's the commons, our right of birth. And you who'd own the water all around the earth, our future is your downfall. Only cut this ball and shame. You who'd sacrifice the public good for your private gain. You claim to own the harvest with your terminator seeds You claim to own the genomes of every animal that breeds You claim to own our culture and the music that we play And with each song that we download To your coffers we must pay You'd even own my name and you'd say it's for the best Maybe you'll let us on your radio If our songs can pass your test You own country, you own western, you say you've given us a choice You may own the airwaves, but you'll never own my voice. It's the commons, our right of birth. And you who'd own the music all around the earth. Our future is your downfall when you cut this ball and chain. You who'd sacrifice the public good for your private gain. It's the commons, our right of birth. And you who would own everything all around the earth. Our future is your downfall, only cut this ball and shame. You who'd sacrifice the public good for your private gain.
0: Good evening and welcome to Corporations and Democracy for December 15th, 2022. This is the program that examines how corporations dominate our democracy and what citizens are doing to replace corporate dominance with true democracy. I'm Steve Gammadini with co-host Annie Esposito. Today's program is our annual look at underreported and suppressed news in the last year, which is highlighted annually at this time by Project Censored in their book titled this year, State of the Free Press 2023. Our guest is Andy Lee Roth, the Associate Director of Project Censored, where he coordinates the Campus Affiliates Program. That's a news Media research network of several hundred students and faculty at two dozen colleges and universities across North America. His research and writing have been published in a variety of outlets, including Index on Censorship, In These Times, Yes Magazine, Media Culture and Society, and the International Journal of Press Politics. He's the co author of the book The Media and Me, something we'll talk about later in the program and the co-editor of the book we'll be discussing today. So let's have a look at the state of the free press, 2023, the news that didn't make the news, and why. Andy Lee Roth, welcome to Corporations and Democracy.
2: Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks, Andy. It's a pleasure to be back on Corporations and Democracy with you. And uh, it's always so rousing to hear David Rovick singing about the (laughs) commons. I think that ought to be a alternative international anthem uh, for all of us.
3: Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I'll tell them you said that. Uh, now about Project Censored, you have decades long respected track record by now. Um, can you say a little bit about where Project Censored came from and how it came to be, and who did it?
2: Well, we started in your in your own neighborhood down down the road at Sonoma State University in Roanoke Park. Back in 1976, uh, Carl Jensen established the project when a student asked a question about the coverage of the 1972 presidential election and how it was that on election night, no one on the major networks mentioned Watergate. Um, And Carl felt he didn't have an adequate answer to that question. He was intrigued by that student's question. And... uh, without taking us too far down the the history lane there. um, uh, The result is that Carl founded Project Censored at Sonoma State as a student-driven media watchdog organization. Uh, We like to say that Carl was doing critical media literacy before we had a name for it, and he was involving students in doing it hands-on, not as something confined to the classroom, but as uh, 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 an engaged research effort that was intended to reach far beyond the classroom and beyond the confines of the campus out to a wider public. And um, we've been working, uh, various people, Peter Phillips, Mickey Huff, my colleagues, uh, and I, and and a whole host of people who constitute the Campus Affiliates Program have been working with students across the nation to carry on and hopefully do justice to that legacy uh, of that Carl started at Sonoma State nearly 50 years ago now.
3: Yeah, you certainly have a lot of national recognition now. I know Ralph Nader, Howard Zinn, Noam Chomsky, Daniel Ellsberg. Um, just a lot of people depend on your publication now. And We're very happy now to have you on every year to kind of sum up the horrors of the past year. So, uh, and the hope for the future while we're at it, um, you do talk a little bit about uh, the difference between uh, mainstream and alternative outlets uh, and and whether when it comes to whether a story is important or not. Uh, what's the difference between the way uh, Project Censor looks at it and the way corporate media does?
2: Well, I think the corporate media are characterized by narrow definitions of who and what count as newsworthy, it's really as simple as that. They're narrow definitions that exclude a lot of people and a lot of issues and a lot of perspectives. Um, they basically reflect corporate, a uh, corporate worldview and corporate interests. Uh, and most of us don't, although we're implicated by those views, we live in a world that is, as you suggest, if not dominated by, at least heavily influenced by corporate power. Um, but we don't live in that world and we need news that serves us as members of communities and uh, in our families. And part of the project's mission is I, I think of the project as having a dual mission. Uh, one is a critical dimension. We try to hold the corporate news media to account when it when it or they, depending on how monolithic you think they are, um, uh, when they fail to provide us the kind of news and information and perspective that we need to be engaged citizens and community members. So that's the critical dimension. And then the affirmative aspect of the project is we're celebrating the good work of independent journalists and the outlets that provide platforms for their work who keep us informed about these stories and who give, who center, um, the perspectives and viewpoints and experiences of people who don't fit the corporate news media's narrow definition of newsworthy.
3: Yeah, the nice thing about all of this is we are going to have a chance to kind of concentrate on those wonderful alternative outlets that work so hard. And then you just kind of round up the work they've done and and let people have a look at it. Um, so censored's in the name, Project Censored, um, but there's a lot of different kinds of censorship that you're dealing with here. It's not just xing out lines, right?
2: Yeah, right. I mean, I always think of the the, the all-time classic Onion story, uh, the satirical news site, The Onion, um, that had the great story years ago about how the CIA had realized over the years that it was mistakenly using Sharpies. The, the black ink pens mm-hmm. as highlighters, and they had no idea that they were inking out all the things they had intended to highlight. The onion, of course, the <laughs> satire uh, uh, is in the irony of it all. Um, but yes, many Americans, when they think of censorship, think of uh, what is known in legal terms as prior restraint. The government saying, you can't publish that. You can't say that. You can't broadcast that. And that is an important kind of censorship, And just because the First Amendment protects the freedom of the press does not mean that the United States is immune to prior restraint type of censorship, that kind of government top-down control of what can be known and what can be discussed. Um, We do know uh, that that takes place in the United States, despite robust First Amendment protections and a long history of Supreme Court cases affirming the importance the fundamental importance of the of the First Amendment press freedoms um but far more prevalent but more subtle and therefore easier to overlook or or underappreciate are the kinds of indirect censorship that the the late great uh Roberto Gaiano was talking about in a 1977 article for the Index on Censorship. Gaiano talked about uh the idea of indirect censorship, he described using the metaphor of the ship doesn't sail because there's no water in the ocean. No one said the ship couldn't sail. There's just nothing for it to sell, sail on, right, in Guyano's rich metaphor. Um And Steve Masick, uh, my colleague at North Central College, and I used that metaphor and play with that metaphor some in the introduction to chapter one of State of the Free Press 2023, uh, where we introduce and begin to describe some of the themes in this year's uh, bundle of top 25 important but underreported news stories. So indirect censorship is is of uh, vital importance if you're going to be critically media literate about um, news in the United States. Um, we do have tremendous press freedoms in the U.S. compared to many countries, um, but we are far from perfect and a variety of indirect indirect censorship manifests itself in, I think, some kind of recurrent story themes that this is now, uh, this yearbook represents, in effect, the 47th cohort of students, college undergraduates who have worked on um, researching, identifying, vetting, and summarizing important but underreported stories for projects censored. And across those 47-some years, we can talk about kind of story patterns that are systemic they're they're the the gaps um uh the lacuna um the overlooked uh, uh elements in the corporate media's vision um so things about corporate misconduct things of uh, uh stories about government uh corporate collusion more generally conflicts of interest uh and, and press censorship um the corporate media, ironically, does a fairly poor job of covering the ways that it that journalism is subject to censorship in the United States, and that's part of why many Americans, I think, have. Uh, uh, an incomplete view of, of the way that censorship as a more broad dynamic phenomena operates in a country that has otherwise fairly robust protections against government interference in, in, in press freedoms.
3: Yeah. You can do a lot to ruin a story just by the emphasis and distortion. and
2: Absolutely. Omission. I mean, one of the things, one of the things that Steve Masick and I write about is how, um, a, a, you know, a blockade of news coverage on a given topic doesn't have to be total in order for the issue to remain unknown to most of the public. Yeah. Right? And so a lot of people will say about this story or that story on a list. Oh, but I saw a Washington Post article about that. Or there was a night where ABC News covered that. And it's like, OK, this huge story with large societal consequences had Three hundred and sixty five days in the last year where it could have been covered, and you can point to one where it was from one outlet. Uh, and so that's uh, there's not a total blockade but but unless you happen to be tuned in that night or you saw the paper that day, you might know little to nothing about that story if you only follow kind of the establishment news media so so this notion again, Guyano's image of the ship not sailing because there's no water in the sea. You don't have to drain the whole sea for it to be impossible to sail.
3: Good, good analogy. Um, that our billionaire press is built, of course, on the same model as uh, cor- corporations. And you point to USA Today, owned by Gannett, uh, perhaps the biggest news outlet. Uh, CEO Mike Reed made $7.74 million in 2021 well, he cut his workforce by almost a quarter. And you say he's kind of small compared to the other big guys. Do you want to regale us with some of the other big shots? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: I mean, Mickey and I had fun. We, we kind of went down a little um, historical uh, uh, memory lane, uh, thinking about kind of what we know historically about the press in the United States. We write about this in the introduction to the book, The State of the Free Press 2023. Um so going back to Upton Sinclair, uh the great uh muckraker and and critic who understood how who basically came out in 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 a in a book called The Brass Check and said basically the 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 establishment press was a class organization. It served the interests of the upper class. And this is this is Upton Sinclair writing in 1919, I think, right? Um a little more recently, AJ Liebling in the New Yorker's Wayward Press column. He's the source of our famous quip that the freedom of the press is only guaranteed to those who own one, right? <laughs> um, and then, of course, up more recently to Ben Bagdikian, his classic 1983 book, *The Media Monopoly*, um, that anticipated the kind of ongoing wave. Of the day. Brings us up to the present. Well, we what we know looking down that kind of historical rearview mirror is that whenever we have consolidated media controlled by a handful of elites, the public interest is seldom served. <laughs> right. And so today, if you look at people like Sheldon Adelson, who's a bigwig casino uh, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. rich guy in Vegas, who owns the Las Vegas Review, convenient for him when there's scandal, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The Benioffs, who founded Salesforce, who have controlling shares in Time Magazine. Of course, Bezos, we all know, Amazon and the Washington Post. Uh, But also people like John Henry, a a major investments manager who owns part owner of the Boston Red Sox, who has a strong share in the Boston Globe. Um, The list goes on and on. And it's not all... You know, uh, you might say, oh, well, the Boston Globe is just a city paper, right? Um, but also people like uh, uh, Laureen powell Jobs, the Apple heiress, it has a partial, uh, she has actually not just partial, but controlling shares in the Atlantic, uh, which many progressive and liberal people read for uh, as an alternative to the kind of, uh, you know, big legacy news outlets So through and through, uh, when Mickey Huff, uh, my colleague, and I kind of assessed what's the state of the free press today, uh, we decided to cross out the free part and insert billionaire in its place, right? (laughs) In some ways, what we're talking about is the state of the billionaire press. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's as uh, our colleague, Peter Phillips, would say, it's top-down controlled media.
3: Yeah, right. The billionaire press, That's how free it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, there's another hazard that you touch on before you get into the actual stories that uh, you spotlight, uh, which is the journalists are, themselves are in danger around the world. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, it's so important um, to talk about this. And it's very timely as well, because Reporters Without Borders just in the last day or two came out with their annual report of violence and abuses against journalists based on the past uh, nearly now 12 months of 2022. Um, So I'll just run through some numbers and then maybe kind of situate them in terms of the concerns of Project Censored. Um, So Reporters Without Borders uh uh reports that at the end of this year there are 533 journalists detained around the world 57 journalists were killed uh in the course of their doing their work in other words for being journalists in the past year another 65 are being held hostage and 49 more are missing can't be accounted for and these are these num you know these are numbers but each of these individual cases is, one, a human being, and two, a case that Reporters Without Borders uh, works meticulously and tirelessly to document and verify and confirm. So these are not kind of pulled out of a hat speculative figures. Um, the world is a very dangerous place for journalists to do their jobs. Um that's true, not only, I mean, when, when I say that, a lot of people think probably of, of the dangers that journalists covering war and other organized forms of conflict might think of. Um, but to me, one of the shocking things in this Just Released Reporters Without Borders report is that uh, more than 60% of the journalists who lost their lives doing journalism in 2022 were they lost their lives in countries that were considered to be at peace. And this isn't all kind of over there type um, um, scenarios. One of them is is right here in the American West. Jeff German, a reporter at the Las Vegas Review Journal, uh, which I just mentioned a little bit ago, uh, was killed earlier this year. Uh, It's known it's a matter of fact that will probably uh, that the person who killed him killed him because of his reporting on corruption in Las Vegas. Um, So the United States is not immune to these dynamics either, uh, even with uh, our relatively strong uh, protections for journalists. And uh, so both the reporters without borders and also the U S press freedom tracker is a vital online resource for people interested in this issue. The U.S. Press Freedom Tracker keeps track of journal keeps a running running record of journalists who have been arrested, detained, assaulted, had their equipment smashed or confiscated. Um, And uh, one of their findings from a year ago was that the you know, the U.S. has become increasingly dangerous for reporters, especially reporters uh, in the wake of uh, BLM protests and um campaign events uh, uh in the especially in the 2020 election um violence against journalism both by police and law enforcement but also by citizens uh took severe upticks um in the summer after the murder of George Floyd and in the lead up to uh the 2020 presidential elections and those numbers have not um uh, when you look at the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker data, which is focused on the United States, obviously, um, those numbers haven't uh, kind of, quote, returned to normal or tapered off. Mm-hmm. So How- the United States continues to be a dangerous place for journalists to do their job. How is coverage of the goings on
0: the event in um, Las Vegas and, and follow up on that? Any, any comment on
2: that? There has been coverage, but that's been covered mostly as a local issue. Right. So I'm not a am not a super expert on it. And I, I, I would need to do more research before I could speak authoritatively on it. But the, at, at the time, it's been covered primarily as a local issue and 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 basically been ignored more broadly uh, uh, as a kind of uh, an anomaly, an exception. Right. Um, journalists in the U.S., you know, the conventional wisdom, the conventional wisdom would be, well, journalists in the U.S. don't get killed for doing their work. Right. Um, unless they're, unless they're reporters who are overseas in areas of conflict, but they don't get domestically journalists don't get killed. Yeah. But, you know, the case of Jeff German shows us as a, as one of my mentors in graduate school, like to say, one is the number two, right? Mm-hmm. Meaning that if it can happen once, that means the conditions for it occurring do, do hold, mm-hmm. even if it's not uh, frequent.
0: Mm-hmm. Any comments on Across the Border in Mexico? As I, I, I keep seeing articles, you know, few a year, uh, more than a few a year, of journalists being murdered in Mexico.
2: Well, Reporters Without Borders considers the Americas to be the world's most dangerous region for media, and that's largely because of Mexico. Eleven of the 57 journalists who were killed in 2022 uh, were Uh, murdered in Mexico, that nearly 20% of the journalists worldwide. Um, And if you add in uh, Haiti and Brazil, um, then nearly half of the total number of journalists killed worldwide are in that kind of broadly defined region of of the Americas. Mm -hmm. So again, we might be focused because of corporate media attention on conflict in Ukraine and so forth. And it's not to say those aren't dangerous areas, And it's not to say that it's a, uh, a a contest for (laughs) where the greatest danger is. Um, but we know that we know, we know historically that Mexico has been one of the most dangerous places for reporters.
3: And in addition to, oh, go ahead.
2: And that contributes to, right? That, that means it's harder to, uh, have a good understanding of things like political corruption in Mexico and therefore harder to to counteract uh, uh and hold people accountable when there is corruption right the the whole point about killing journalists is it's the yeah. ultimate form of censorship right you silence the voice that can bring to the public an understanding of what's happening um and so when there's impunity for people who kill or uh, or otherwise abuse journalists uh all of us suffer that's not just that's not just the journalists uh and and their families although that of course is the very first and most powerful impact but all of us are damaged in one way or another indirectly by that because we know less when journalists are silenced and of course it's not just the journalists who cannot speak because they've been killed or are being held hostage or are disappeared. But, but there's also what we know is chilling effects on other journalists who may choose. And so this is another of these in forms of indirect censorship, self-censorship, the decision not to cover a story, um, or to not cover an aspect of a story because doing so might put you at harm. Um, it's hard to judge uh, reporters who make those choices uh, when when they they may make them knowing their lives or the lives of their families are at stake. And that's a very serious issue and a serious compromise of, of, of freedom of the press.
3: In addition to physical violence, I guess a lot of journalists face legal challenges just for doing their job.
2: Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, that was actually uh, a story that we covered in last year's book about um, – how journalists investigating financial crimes were increasingly threatened by various elite global elites, including institutions and organizations like major banks. Um, and that harassment would included not only kind of physical threats, but also very much the threats of, of, um, libel, uh, suits, libel suits, not so much in the United States, uh, but, uh, in the UK, especially, um, um, and so given the globalized nature of how the Internet works and reporting that it, uh, jurisdiction becomes a very um, gray area and the grayness in this case works in the favor of of um, elites who would like to who who would prefer to shut up um, journalists investigating um, financial and other crimes um, and they can do so by finding a jurisdiction where the libel laws are, are um, more favorable to their interests. And even if they never win those cases, the, uh, the, uh, they can do damage to reporters who often have uh, little in the way of financial resources to defend themselves and, of course, just get their time wasted um, um, uh, fending off uh, libel suits and such. So, yeah, that's another another way that press freedom can be undermined. And it's not to say we shouldn't have libel laws. Those are important. But when the libel laws can be exploited by powerful entities as a way of keeping themselves from being held accountable, uh, we need to know and understand uh, how those dynamics work.
3: And, of course, our extreme poster child here would be Julian Assange.
2: Yeah. I mean, we... um Julian Assange, it's a huge, that's a huge, uh, a huge topic. Um, I'm very proud. I'll, I'll, just, I'll sidestep it for now, uh, simply by saying, uh, I believe that the defense of Julian Assange is crucial to anyone who cares in, about freedom of the press. Um, even if we don't consider Julian Assange a journalist or a whistleblower, the attacks on him as a publisher uh, we'll have if they're successful, we'll have a chilling effect on all kinds of journalism all over the world. Um, uh, a person who's an excellent source of information on this is Kevin Gastola uh, from Shadowproof, who's been covering the case of Assange. And I'm very proud to say that Project Censored's publishing imprint, the Censored Press, will be bringing out um, Kevin's book on Julian Assange and the and the WikiLeaks case and. Um, Early in 2023, uh, Kevin's book is called Guilty of Journalism. And I'm very proud to have gotten to work with him on that book and can't wait for it to come out.
3: And when our listeners get a hold of... uh your new state of the Free Press 2023 from Project censored they'll find that there's also a chapter on the CIA contemplating assassinating um, Assange so he was he got it from both directions legal uh, harassment and a uh, physical violence um, threats so Steve
2: yeah that's absolutely right uh, Yahoo News David Isakoff and a team of reporters at Yahoo News uh, broke that story. Um, Very high-level discussions in the Trump administration uh, about uh, possibly killing Assange or uh, uh, kidnapping him. Running gun battles in the streets of London were considered. The U.S. asked whether uh, U.K. operatives might be able to help in that operation. There were, of course, denials of this from official sources, dismissals that this was just Trump being Trump. But uh, Isikoff and his colleagues at Yahoo News interviewed 30 high level, um, high level government officials, uh, uh, a number of whom said um, shocking things about the, uh, uh, the level of planning that was at least considered as a way of basically, you know, depending on how you want to think of it, getting rid of Assange. Mm-hmm. So the, the U.S. government has it in for him and. Um, Uh, They will make arguments that it's about uh, national security and so forth. But um, as Kevin Costola and others have documented thoroughly, it's pretty clear that the case against the U.S. case against Assange is driven by notions that 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 by publishing the things he did, uh, 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 Assange and WikiLeaks embarrassed the United States. And of course, Assange has been had his life turned inside out and faces life in prison um, under Espionage Act charges if he's uh, successfully brought to the United States. But of course, none of the people who are implicated by the collateral murder video have ever been charged with any crimes. So there are some significant imbalances in notions of justice at work in that case. That's the collateral
0: murder video, which uh, from about 10, no, I'm no, pushing 20 years ago now, is it not?
2: Um, and- I think I, I'm going to be uh, bad off the top of my head on dates on that, but I think it was around two ten to 2011. I mean, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, just to unpack a little bit, that video showed um, an armed U.S. helicopter striking Uh, Targets that included civilians and after a first round of attacks, also rescuers with audio of um, some of the uh, military people involved in the attacks um, saying some of the most inhumane things in the course of the attacks. Um, Again, collateral murder for those that have not
0: uh, seen that. Just look it up on YouTube. Let me take a moment to mention, listeners, this is Corporations and Democracy, and we're speaking with Andy Lee Roth about this year's edition of the uh, Project Censors annual book. It's called The State of the Free Press 2023. And if you'd like to get in on the discussion or make a comment, you can reach us here at 895 2448 that's in area code 707, again, 895-2448.
3: So one of the joys of this book is getting to delve into the many different hardworking alternative uh, news sources that we have that that try to bring these things to light that, that you so carefully select. Uh, and one of those outlets is The Intercept, uh, which incidentally has a show right here on KCYX. And The Intercept has four stories this year in Project Censors Yearbook. There's uh, EPA withholding information on dangerous chemicals, Facebook's blacklist and blackout of news about Palestine, and also a story on surveillance advertising. Uh, Would you like to talk a little bit about that story, surveillance advertising? Yeah.
2: So, yeah, The Intercept is a vital source of independent investigative journalism. And this particular story was reported by Li Feng in a February uh, article. Um, The idea is that the world's kind of background before getting to the point of Li Feng's story, the world's most popular social media apps and platforms. So think Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, all collect users' data and employ it to target them with targeted advertising. And this has become uh, known after Shoshana Zuboff's work as surveillance advertising. It's ubiquitous. It's extremely profitable for the organizations and groups that do it. So early this year, the Biden administration's Federal Trade Commission it began to seek to regulate the collection of user data. So this would be the the, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, trying to rein in surveillance advertising. Um, and what Fang's story is about is how lobbyists for online advertisers and their big media clients, and I'll say some about who these organizations are in a moment, basically pushed back um And one of the major trade groups that represents these media outlets is the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Um, the Interactive Advertising Bureau represents some of the largest, um, some of the largest, uh, U.S. news organizations. So, um, let's see. Let me get the right volume of the yearbook and I'll tell you the names of these, which I'm not going to trust myself to do from memory. Um, So organizations like the CNN, the New York Times, NBC, the Washington Post, Fox News, they all uh, have contracts with the Interactive Advertising Bureau uh, as the trade group that represents them and their interests as digital advertisers. So... What they what Fang is reporting is basically a conflict of interest story. The the, you know, major corporate media outlets, The Times, NBC, The Post, Fox News, CNN, all are paying IAB, the Interactive Advertising Bureau, to lobby against restrictions on surveillance advertising that the FTC is seeking to have put into place. And at the same time, they're not reporting about the FTC's efforts to regulate surveillance advertising. It's a conflict of interest as, uh, as, as Fang put it in his article, um, uh, major news outlets chose not to cover the story because if they did, they would have had to acknowledge the awkward reality <laughs> that they too regularly use and profit abundantly from that surveillance advertising um, so this is a story I think about the in effect the the corporate news media self censoring because to report this story would have been to implicate themselves in it. Um, and if we think of ethical journalism as being um, defined by the importance of being accountable and transparent this you know this is a kind of one two three strikes you're out on this story as <laughs> far as the corporate news media go yes right they aren't seeking they aren't reporting the truth and they're failing to be accountable and transparent and as a result if another of the ethical principles of If another of the principles of ethical journalism is to minimize harm by failing to inform the public about organized efforts to thwart the FTC's efforts to restrict surveillance advertising, arguably the public interest is dramatically harmed by by that omission.
3: Yeah, so thanks to Intercept. That, by the way, Intercept was founded in, by eBay money in 2014. Um, but today is mostly member supported. And today Intercept has a story online about what really caused inflation and, uh, wasn't government spending. <laughs> so people could check out intercept.com to get those kind of alternative views. Uh, the, here's a big publication, and it's it mainstream. The U.K. Guardian has a U.S. edition, and it's, it's really good to check in on the view of the United States from outside of the United States sometime. Uh, the Guardian's been around since 1821, starting out, I believe, it's the Manchester Guardian. Um, mm-hmm. And you can access their front page news online, guardian.com slash U.S., And Guardian was a contribution to several of Project Censored's offerings this year, Uh, corporations and food prices, school surveillance, um, and also Project Censored's uh, number one story this time around, fossil fuel subsidized. Would you like to talk a little bit about the staggering (laughs) amount of of subsidizing is going on um, around the country, uh, a lot of it in uh, the U.S. and the other usual suspects.
2: Yeah, a shout-out to uh, Damian Carrington, the reporter at The Guardian who broke this story, and also to Eduardo Garcia at Treehugger, who also reported on this story. Um, Their reports are based on a study conducted and published by the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, Not a source you find Project Censored championing (laughs) often. Um, But this study is quite amazing, not just for where it originates, but for what it found. The startling figure, and I'll say this slowly and carefully and then pause for us (laughs) all to let it sink in. Mm -hmm. The IMF found that in 2020, on a global basis, the fossil fuel industry received subsidies of $11 million per minute. So sure. fossil fuel companies received $5.9 trillion in subsidies in 2020, a figure that the IMF expects to uh, uh, expand to more than $6.4 trillion, so well over $11 million a minute by 2025. That Those are stupendous numbers, Steve. Amazing, Annie, right? We can almost – like in the time since you brought this topic up, the fossil fuel industry – has raked in $11 million of direct and indirect governmental subsidies from uh, governments around the world. So that's an important component of this story. They are both direct benefits. So these are things like tax breaks and price reductions that governments can, uh, uh, can offer directly to fossil fuel companies. Uh, such as ExxonMobil, which, by the way, just reported $20 billion profits in the last quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the fossil fuel industry is also getting indirect subsidies. And this was really the focus of Carrington and Garcia's reports for The Guardian and Treehugger. Um, the idea that fossil fuel companies make these mammoth profits But they're never held liable for the health costs of things like deadly air pollution, damages caused by extreme weather events linked to global warming and uh, carbon emissions, the costs resulting from traffic collisions and congestion, right? All these are what the economists talk about as externalities, right? It's the ability of the profit-making entity to externalize the costs of doing business to other third parties, And as Eduardo Garcia pointed out in his article for Treehugger, when governments don't collect adequate revenues from by taxing, say, fossil fuel operations, the result is that taxes have to be raised in other areas or you have to cut public services. And so the ripple effect of these indirect subsidies, direct and indirect subsidies to the fossil fuel industry kind of permeate our society. Um, The Guardian um, quoted Mike Coffin, a senior analyst at Carbon Tracker, saying it's critical that governments stop propping up an industry in decline. Um, And I believe it was the Guardian that also reported that if governments around the world were were to end fossil fuel subsidies, the result would be uh, the prevention of nearly a million deaths a year from dirty air. And they, there would also be trillions of dollars more available to governments for social programs that actually serve the public good. So I think this is a story that is right up the alley of uh, the corporations and democracy, <laughs>
3: yeah. it kind
2: of epitomizes the very tensions that your, uh, that your program so regularly highlights
3: and if we're having a hard time wondering why it's taking so long and why it's so hard to get something going with the climate change, there's the number one story and the reason why. Mm-hmm. They're making $11 million a minute uh, in, subsidies. Just
0: in subsidies. in subsidies. In yeah.
3: subsidies. Perks for doing this.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me mention one more time, uh, 895-2448. If anyone would like to get in a question or comment on the air. in area code 707.
3: Another of my favorite places is the Progressive. It's an old left-wing magazine. It goes back to 1909. And, of course, now it's online at Progressive.org. And their mission, is, they say, is to amplify voices of dissent, and they have bedrock values of nonviolence and freedom of speech. They made Project Censors Yearbook, this time for their story on Nazis in the Department of Justice. (laughs) <laughs> oh,
2: my God. <laughs> sounds shocking. It sounds like it should be like the Midnight Movie, right? <laughs> um, yeah, this is reporting by Helen Christofi, uh from a November 2021 issue of The Progressive, The Lone Wolf in the Hen House. Um, and this is a story about uh, Brian P. Houghton, who's a former member of multiple racist skinhead bands, uh, a past leader in the neo-Nazi movement who now holds... Uh, a crucial counterterrorism position in the Department of Justice um, he has the, the 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 branch within the DOj that he works for has a very long adjective filled name that I'm just gonna uh, take a moment to read he's the law enforcement coordinator for domestic counterterrorism which sounds like a good thing right um, in the mid-atlantic Great lake organized crime law enforcement network <laughs> of the department of justice's regional information sharing systems or the risks. Um, so basically uh, long story short, uh, going back to the eighties and nineties, um, there is a public record of Houghton playing drums in a, a band known as the arresting officers, a neo-Nazi band that takes their name from the, the belief among neo-Nazis that the arresting officers had the best jobs because they got to beat up people of color. Um, He also has connections to members of the Aryan, I'm sorry, Aryan Republican Army, uh, which is uh, he has connections to, wasn't necessarily a member of uh, this gang that robbed uh, nearly two dozen banks in the Midwest in the mid 90s and is suspected of having funded uh, the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, At some point. Uh, Houghton changed sides and became a member of the Philadelphia Police Department. Um, and from there, he parlayed that into um, his current position in the Department of Justice as a, as a domestic counterterrorism uh, expert. Um, uh, this is part of a broader trend, and this is something that I think is important in, in the progressives reporting on this. It's He's not a single isolated individual. He's sort of the kind of the case study of a broader phenomenon um, that we know going back um, as far as 2006, the FBI was well aware uh, that white supremacists were actively seeking jobs as police officers in order to gain access to intelligence and weapons training. Um, And in a a 2015 report, uh, uh, there was a policy directive from the FBI's counterterrorism branch talking about, quote, active links between white supremacists and law enforcement officials. Now, this story kind of broke through into, um, uh, uh, you know, our I suppose, our our wider news awareness after the uh, January 6th assault on the uh, on the national capital. Um, And what we know now about the involvement of uh, white supremacists and law and people with law enforcement connections on that day um but yeah this is a kind of a daunting story because uh you know the arguments are well as a former insider he has deep insights and perhaps connections that make him a, a valuable resource for counterterrorism um but as um a Georgetown law professor Vita Johnson notes um first of all police typically underestimate white people as threats um, and uh, uh, as others noted in, the, uh, in uh progressive report, um, it's hard to believe that the FBI didn't know uh, about Houghton's past when he was hired for this position. right? And so if we're talking about uh, at a time in the nation's history where we're confronting uh, longstanding legacies of white supremacy and systemic racism, it's 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 deeply disturbing to think that there is a position uh, there is a person high in the Department of Justice with the kind of background that Houghton has.
3: Yeah, you're not kidding. Huh? Uh, one place that I would really like to get in here is Vox.com. They're pretty interesting because they try to explain the news, so I often go to Vox.com just for that. Um, but you also found a pretty interesting story there about uh, transportation and um, climate change.
2: I'm so glad, Annie, you asked about this story. This is one of, I think, my favorite stories on uh, uh, on the list. It's a bit of a sleeper. It doesn't sound on the surface like a, a big dramatic thing, but it actually ties in exactly with our number one story and the kind of the predominance of the fossil fuel industry and how it benefits from from uh all kinds of of uh subsidies while while causing all kinds of harm. So this is a story that it actually draws on several sources, uh Gabby Berenbaum at Fox, um, but also Lawrence Carter at Unearthed and Basav Sin from Inequality, which is a publication of the Institute for Policy Studies. The key finding here is that um the federal government basically puts out four times as much funding for roadways as it does for public transport and that's a long standing imbalance that deprives the nation's poorest of basic mobility and has done so for decades um so one of the one of the basic figures uh out of this story would be that since 1990 the urban roadway system has grown by nearly 70% and that is in effect Um, As Sin reported for uh, the Institute for Policy Studies, for oil and gas industries, highway-centric transportation is a gift that keeps giving, right? (laughs) Um, But at the same time, public transportation systems have accumulated a backlog of, by some estimates, as much as $176 billion in maintenance and repair backlogs, right? So again, thinking about that $11 uh, million a minute subsidies now that's a global figure that's not just in the united states but if you imagined a portion of that being put back into maintaining uh infrastructure and supporting public transportation uh how might our country uh uh how might inequality in our country uh look different or be transformed um so uh, credit to Vox on this. The the next detail that I'm about to um, report comes from Unearthed's article on this topic. Uh, Unearthed went undercover um, and got people from ExxonMobil to talk about the lobbying they were engaged in to try to weaken <laughs> key aspects of President Joe Biden's flagship climate change initiative, the American Jobs Plan. Mm-hmm. And basically, some of the ExxonMobil people Revealed to to uh, unearthed that they were actively targeting moderate senators seeking to influence them to scale back the plan's ambitions by scrapping tax hikes that would pay for um, that would pay for the the plan. Um, so, uh, you know, this kind of uh, backroom dealing is, I think, You know, an important component of the story and probably happens more often than reporters as intrepid as they may be can document. So none of the nation's most prominent news media appears to have reported the the findings um, uh, from any of these articles. Um, It's another case of this is just not on the radar of the corporate news media. It's a systemic problem. uh, And those are the kinds that are often overlooked. As um, I always like to quote one of um, one of Project Censor's esteemed judges, the group of experts who help us determine each year's top 25 lists, story lists, is um, a person named Robert Hackett who founded Newswatch Canada. And Hackett has this great line that the corporate news is about what, hap- what went wrong today, not about what goes wrong every day. Mm-hmm. And captured in that in that line is the idea that uh, corporate news typically focuses on events and the dramatic actions of particular individuals. And it's much harder for reporters uh, working in a corporate framework to, in effect, from my point of view, think sociologically or see sociologically about how certain kinds of social problems have, have systemic roots and that we won't we won't find, as the great, late great sociologist C. Wright Mills, uh, uh, in effect, uh, uh, put it, we'll, we'll never find individual solutions to collective problems, mm-hmm. right? Collective problems require collective solutions. And so that's one more reason why we need, um, Independent media that has shown itself over the entire history of the project to be much more attuned to the idea of systemic social problems, problems that can't be um, teased out in terms of a simplistic red versus blue conservative Republican, uh, I'm sorry, conservative, liberal, uh, Republican, Democrat framework. Right. There are stories for which that frame is applicable, but but there are also all, all kinds of systemic stories. And some of the ones we've talked about tonight are, in effect, by bi- bipartisan systemic problems. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, um, a lot the of- subsidies, the subsidies to fossil fuels, the lack of, of uh, investment in public transportation. These are things where you can't pin the blame easily on one party or the other. They have to do with deeper systemic issues uh, in our country's economy, its political economy.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, allow me to suggest a new tab for your main uh, web page uh, mm-hmm. of, of these just uh, gem quotations that you've uh, tossed out here and there in yeah. the program. <laughs> they, they're they are so short and so meaningful. Yeah, thank and you. And we Steve. did
3: not even scratch the surface of the 25 stories that are featured in Project Censored State of the Free Press 2023 published
0: uh, just a week or so ago, I believe. We got ours that's in. That's right. Yeah. And uh, and available for the holiday giving for the uh, <laughs> for listeners who'd like to to uh, add it to their library or someone else's.
2: And that is available the website is Mm -hmm. projectcensored.org. You Mm -hmm. can order it directly from us, but you can also ask for it at your favorite local independent bookstore. And if Mm -hmm. they don't already have it on the shelf, they can probably get it for you.
0: Okay, and we have a few of those around the county, which I'm happy to give my business to. And uh, so, here in Ukiah, in Willits, and over on the coast in Fort Bragg and in Mendocino.
3: So it's the yearbook, the Project Censored yearbook, edited by Mickey Huff and our guest, Andy Lee Roth. And we just have like two and a half minutes left. So.
2: Oh well, let me say like part part of what we've been doing tonight the the stories are not good news stories by and large, right? Let's agree. Mm-hmm. They yeah, kind of downer. Yeah, right? bummer. But part of what we've been doing, and part of what I appreciate about how you've organized uh, our conversation tonight, Annie and Steve, is uh, we're really also celebrating the good mm-hmm. important vital work of independent journalists and the independent news outlets that provide a platform for them. Mm -hmm. And I would include KZYX, KZYZ and corporations and democracy and the whole slate of programs that Mendocino community radio provides a platform for in that, in that collection of independent outlets that again, have that broader, that broader definition of who and what count as newsworthy. CNN isn't inviting me on to talk about the top 25 stories, (laughs) but but Steve and Annie are. And I appreciate that. And the project appreciates that. I think that's part of how we build a movement uh, for a better world, for better news, for more inclusive and diverse perspectives in the news. And ultimately, the purpose of the news is you know and the purpose of a first amendment protection on the freedom of the press is to provide for a more robust and inclusive and justice oriented democracy. Okay and that's projectcensor.org to have a look at the book there's also a summary of these
0: 25 articles there. So yeah. people can get the general general gist of that. So thank you Andy Lee Roth for being with us today. We appreciate your excellent insights and uh, keeping People up to speed on the news that didn't make the news over the last year.
2: Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Andy. Okay.
3: Thank you,
0: Andy. You've been listening to Corporations and Democracy, broadcast on third and two, uh, third Thursdays. That's from 7 to 8 p.m. here on Z. The next edition will be in two weeks. That's Thursday, January 19th. For further information about what you can do to correct the corporate dominance of our democracy, go to www.